Action Network podcast. It's time! Welcome into the Action Network podcast. This is your UFC 273 betting preview. Brendan Glasheen with the Action Network senior writer Sean Zarillo and former professional MMA fighter, MMA analyst Billy Ward. Good to be back this week after a, a one-week hiatus because of the scheduling in UFC. UFC 273 available on pay-per-view takes us down to Florida, Star Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville. 13 fights, six on the main card, seven prelims. We won't get to every fight, but we, we're going to break down everything from a betting perspective. The guys have their fight of the night. We'll get their picks on that. Underdog plays, favorite props, a look at the daily fantasy angles and best bets. But first, we've got two huge fights to break down. The main event, Alexander Volkanovsky. He's the heavy favorite against Chan Sung Jung. They're about the same size coming in. Volkanovski, the featherweight champion. He's got the edge in significant striking. Uh, then you got the, the Korean zombie and Jung. Grappling has an upside. Sean Zarillo, how are you approaching this fight from a betting perspective, sir? Yeah, Korean zombie also walks out to the zombie by the cranberries, so I probably give him 10% implied win probability off of that alone. Excellent walkout song. I think Volkanovsky's finishing upside here is getting a little bit underrated relative to his previous fights. He's had some absolute wars and hasn't managed to finish. Probably should have had a finish over Brian Ortega. I think that fight could have been stopped multiple times. Ortega's fight corner probably should have thrown him the towel. Now, I don't really see Jung winning minutes here, especially down the stretch. Volkanovsky is an excellent minute winner. Doesn't win them by wide margins. He tends to edge them out but he wins minutes very consistently, excellent movement, really good at fighting the hands, just does a lot of things to sort of mix up your brain, confuse you, make it, make you think about different things. And as you're moving, he'll hit you. Um, his, he's going to be able to kick the leg all day against Jung, going to chew up that leg early and often. I expect Jung to try to pressure. Volk might actually be fighting off the back foot, but he can fight moving forward, moving backwards. Jung probably needs a finish here to win. I gave him 15% of his win condition by decision, 85% inside the distance. So in my opinion, the fight to end inside the distance should be closer to a coin flip. Jung by KO should be closer to nine to one and Jung inside the distance should be closer to six to one. I think if you want to get crazy with Jung, I'm not really interested in the money line. Maybe if it got up to plus 600, I would take his inside the distance prop at around seven to one. And I'd take his knockout prop at 10 to one. And I, I wouldn't bet them big, but I think there's value on both of those just because I think that's how he wins this fight. He probably has the submission grappling upside. I think uh, Volkanovsky definitely has the wrestling to take him down, but I don't know if he wants to go there because he's probably going to be more danger on the ground than he might be on the feet. Volk recovers pretty quickly when he gets hurt, but he gets hurt in almost every fight. And Jung hits very hard, probably the hardest hitter he's faced. So I do see a finish potentially occurring for Jung. I can see Volkanovski getting an attritional finish down the stretch. Like I said, I projected this fight to end inside the distance, literally right around a coin flip. I think I actually have it 52%. So 48% inside the distance, plus 110 is where I'd make it. You can get plus 125 out there. I think as high as uh, under four and a half at plus 130. That's, that's how I'd go about playing this fight. I see finishing upside for both fighters. And I think given the fact that the Korean zombie nickname sort of, you know, amplifies what people think about his durability, but also Volkanovsky's previous fights going to a decision. 
think that finish is due for him. And he's talked about wanting to get a finish here just to elevate his pound for pound status. Billy, when you assess Jung and what he's been through in previous fights, if you had to bet it, how are you going about the main event this week? Yeah, I really like Sean's point about the nickname kind of skewing people's perception on that. He was finished by Yair Rodriguez and Jose Aldo, both somewhat late in the fight. I see Volkanovski doing a similar thing. The leg kicks add up over time, just as Sean put it, the attritional stoppage. So that I think is 150 right now for Volk inside the distance. That's the only bet I'm comfortable making on this one. The only other angle I have is if Jung looks really good early and we get a little bit better of a live line on Volkanovski, I might be hitting that too. Because he tends to be a little bit, a little bit better cardio. He doesn't gas himself out as much as Jung, and he might wear him down throughout time. So if we see, you know, his line drop significantly, I'm going to hit that, but I'm not, you know, betting laying the minus 760 or whatever we're seeing for him now. I mean, he's going to land, if this goes 25 minutes, he's going to land 200 strikes on Jung. Jung's very hittable. This might just be a 25-minute war where nobody goes down, and you're like, oh, that probably should have cashed. But I think based on the pace of the fight, it's pretty likely that somebody gets hurt here. Let's move on to the bantamweight. It's a rematch, folks, from March 6th at UFC 259. You've got Aljamain Sterling against Peter Yan, the champion Sterling. He won on disqualification. He's been facing a lot of criticism. He's been outspoken about it. He was just speaking, I think, as early as yesterday or earlier this morning about, you know, every, everything he's been hearing uh, throughout the course of the week. So it's it's out there. That's for sure. Um the funk master said uh, this week, he says he sees himself climbing Peter Jan's back like a spider monkey. Wow. Um, <laughs> Billy, we'll go to you first here. You're, you're actually into Sterling, despite the fact that it was disqualification. You feel, I guess, based on your assessment before we uh, got going here, you feel as if like he, he was worthy of being named champion and you think he's riding a little momentum coming in. I don't want to put it that strong. But okay. I do think at Fair enough. the plus 370, you can get on him now. That's a bit too long. You know, the popular conception out there is that Jan just dominated and he was, you know, about to finish him and then need him in the head and got the disqualification. It was a lot closer fight than people think. I think two of the judges had it 2-2 at the time it was stopped. So it really wasn't like this one-sided beatdown. And then the other angle I'm looking at here is these Florida judges are historically just terrible. Like there was a fight last time they were here that one judge had it 30-27 one way and one had it the other way. So at plus 370, could Sterling get kind of an undeserved, undeserved decision here? I don't think that's a crazy thing. So when we're getting that kind of juice on it, I'm willing to sprinkle a little bit on, on the theoretical champ. I don't know how much people think he's the, the actual champ, but Aljamain Sterling being the current title holder, I think at plus 370 is a pretty good line. He's a champ with an asterisk, as right. some might, might add. Sean Zarillo, how do you want to go about betting the co-made event, Sterling v. Jan? Yeah, the paper two. champ, as some people put it. Um, big, big, big odds adjustments from the first fight to the second. Normally, we don't see this dramatic odds adjustment for a rematch, but there wouldn't have been a rematch, probably, if Jan didn't get disqualified. I bet Sterling in the first fight around evens. In hindsight, it was a terrible bet. Also bet him around 350 to win by decision. Um, he was competitive early, but Jan tends to be a very slow starter and Sterling tends to be a fast starter. Jan is a bit like Floyd Mayweather in that he will give away early minutes to make his reads and then pour it on you late. He's another type of attritional fighter like Volkanovsky. And almost always I look to bet Jan live after round one and round two. And pre-fight, I'll play his round four and round five props. Just how he fights. He builds as the fight goes. 
Sterling is a bit of a catch-22 here. Now, I bet him in the first fight because I thought he had the grappling upside, and I thought he could outpoint Jan on volume at distance. The, he outpointed him, uh, generally speaking, for the first 10 minutes of the fight, which tends to happen in Jan's fights. I believe he got knocked down in the first round, which is why he lost the first round on two of the three scorecards, won the second round unanimously. But it seemed pretty evident after the third round that he was done. He was on his stool, looked completely exhausted. He threw so many punches and kicks and spinning attacks, was falling down, attempted 17 takedowns. Jan's defensive grappling was awesome in that fight. Kept tripping Sterling. He actually looked like the better grappler, maybe. Now, the whole thing about Sterling taking his back, being a spider monkey, yeah, he could do what he did to Corey Sanhagen if he gets his back. Work up along the fence, backpack him, choke him out. Sure, that upside's still there, absolutely. I think it's less likely than it was the first time around. Jan probably looked like, in hindsight, like a minus 300 favorite, given how that first fight played out. So I think the line adjustment for the money line might be right. But we've also seen an adjustment for the fight to end inside the distance. It was minus 150 last time. Now it's even money. I'm fine taking that. Sterling, as I said, bit of a catch-22. He can either try to wrestle again and gas out, or he could stay at range, try to outpoint Jan, and probably lose on power optics. I think he'll land more volume, but Jan lands the more significant strikes. And it's pretty evident Sterling doesn't have a ton of power coming back. He's just kind of touching you and moving, touching you and moving. So he can win on optics, certainly, and keep this fight closer. And it's tough to look really good against him because he's he's the funk master. He's really awkward. He does a lot of different things that... It's not like Corey Sanhagen and Jan where it's just going to be a pure kickboxing match and Jan's going to look phenomenal because he can do whatever he wants kickboxing. But if you're going to mix in different techniques and styles, it's going to make the fight look closer optically than it should be. So I think this line is blown out of proportion. I agree with Billy, but I prefer the adjustment on the fight hand inside the distance. I still think that submission upside for Sterling is there. And I still think the knockout upside is certainly there for Jan, if anything, Sterling looked pretty bad down the stretch in that fight. Now, he also mentioned uh, feeling like terrible before that fight. And since then, he's had a bad neck injury, like big neck surgery. I think that's the thing that people aren't talking about enough. This guy had like a career-threatening neck injury, which is what's holding me off of betting him. But that that does lend itself more to the finishing upside of the fight. I was just going to mention that. And Billy, if you have a thought on it, the, the he did say this week, Sterling, he mentioned that, you know, his body, he's had difficulty trying to figure out if his body is going to cooperate. Does that concern you at all? Cause I know you did mention, you mentioned the judges and you would sprinkle a bit on Sterling. Does that come to mind at all? Yeah. It's hard to say exactly what's going on with that. Cause I think he had the injury going into the last fight. It wasn't just caused by the knee or anything like that. So there's the angle that maybe he's actually healthier than he was going into that one. But then on the other side, you know, usually don't hear guys looking better after a neck surgery. You know, or you honestly, you don't see guys continue to fight after a neck surgery almost yeah. ever. So it's a bit concerning, but it's just too much of an adjustment. You know, Sean pointed out it was close to even money before. Now we're getting almost four to one. There's there's a few ways that can go right. I don't love it, but yeah. He might have even closed as a favorite in some spots last time. So yeah. I mean, it's a it's a significant odds adjustment, but I do think it reflects how the fight played out down the stretch. Just you can't assume that the first fight is going to look like the second fight. This may be completely different. Maybe Sterling's more conservative and just tries to like run away from him and touch him and run away. Let's move on now to our favorite underdog picks for UFC 273. Again, it's in Jacksonville this week, and you can catch it uh, on pay-per-view, also ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Sean Zarella, how about you first? Favorite underdog play? Going to go plus money heavyweight Marcin Tybura. 
plus 135 against Biggie Boy Jarzina Rosenstrike. I'm not a fan of Rosenstrike in general. The guy's had nine fights in the UFC. I think he's won three rounds, and he hasn't won a single round unanimously. All of his margins are very close. He backs up, tries to counterpunch. He's going to get outvolumed in every fight. He just will land the biggest shot of the round if he lands it, but he rarely lets his hands go. Tybura, very reliable to grapple, and he has 100% of the grappling upside in this fight. So generally speaking, when I have a fighter with all of the grappling upside at plus money, I'm going to bet them because it's much easier to look like a big favorite in hindsight grappling than it is in a striking matchup. The, the levels in grappling are wider than they are striking. Um, I think he's likely to win the ugliest possible version of this fight, just holding Rosenstrike up against the cage for 15 minutes, kind of like he did with Volkov. He lost the Volkov fight because once they separated, he couldn't keep up on volume. But Rosenstrike's not going to throw anything. So I think he can get on top of Rosenstrike and finish him. I think he can hold him up against the cage. And I think when they're striking, he could be relatively competitive. So other than a Rosenstrike knockout, I don't really see how he wins this fight. I didn't technically project value on it, but logically, I don't really see how you get him past 40, 45% here. Yeah, takedown defense jumps out, and then the takedown average per 15 minutes is pretty pretty striking numbers um, for Ty Burra, no, no question. Billy Ward, your favorite underdog. Yeah, real quick, I'm definitely with Sean on that one. There's there's lucky punches, but there's not really such a thing as a lucky takedown or a lucky armbar or anything like that. So I'll take the grappler as well. But I'm looking at Josh Fremd. He's a UFC newcomer coming in at, plus 170 against Anthony Hernandez. It's really hard to handicap Hernandez because he's looked really, really good submitting Hidalfo Vieira. And then he gets submitted by Marcus Perez, a guy who lost all of his other fights and got cut. But what we're seeing with Ramd is he's stepping in on somewhat short notice with all that middleweight shuffling we saw on this card. But he was a guy who had a UFC contract before. I think when you see a newcomer with a plus 170 line, if he's some guy who's stepping in as a last minute replacement who probably wouldn't be in the UFC otherwise, that makes sense. This is a guy who won a fight on the uh, looking for a fight series. He already had a contract, so he was booked. I think he's got a little bit of a grappling upside here, even though Hernandez had some good submissions. And he's four inches taller and a lot bigger, so I like his striking too. I think the grappling is, you know, maybe a coin flip at worst, but then I've got Fremd as the better striker. And I don't think Hernandez is big enough for the division. He's, you know, six foot, relatively slender. He kind of got like a Kevin Holland type thing going on where he might have a lot more success at 170 and Frem's a pretty big dude. So at plus 170, that's where I'm going. Hernandez, the epitome of a guy you bet at plus money and do not touch at juice. Right. Just could never lay juice on fluffy Hernandez. That is a, that's a criminal betting act. Let's go to you. Uh, let's go to your guys fight of the night uh, this week. You got Kamzat Shimaev. He's the 11th ranked fighter undefeated taking on Gilbert Burns, seeing him at plus 400 here on bet MGM. Shimaev, the heavy favorite, Sean, how would you, uh, first off, like, why do you, so how does this fight jump out to you and, and how are you playing it? I mean, Hamzad is just the most interesting man in MMA right now. Yeah. Uh, complete mystery, largely. We just, he's been so, okay. So he, this guy's been so good that people are penalizing him for efficiency. Goes out, dominates. Ah, but we haven't seen him do this and that. Yeah, because he's he's too good. Now, if you put Gilbert Burns in there with Reese McKee, or if you put him in there with John Phillips right now, he probably does something similar to what Hamzat did. So there's there's a non-zero chance that Hamzat is the GOAT, and he's just going to like one punch his way to the title. There's a non-zero chance of that. It's more likely he's just a top three guy who was top three when he came into the UFC, but normally guys don't come into the UFC at that level. They develop, get better. 
but he was like a finished product going against these non-ranked fighters and dominating them. But what he did to Li Jianwang, nobody does to anybody who's a ranked fighter in the UFC. That was a little bit ridiculous. Slammed him, talking to Dana, choked him out. Um, Hamzat seems to be a little bit different physically, strength-wise, mentality-wise. The pace that he keeps from the moment the fight starts until the moment the fight ends is unlike anything we've almost ever seen. But there's so many question marks about him. What happens if he gets hit? What happens if he gets extended? What does it look like when he's striking at range for extended periods? And Gilbert Burns has a lot of finishing upside in general. He hits like an absolute truck. He knocked Kamaru Usman down and almost finished him in the first round. ADCC submission grappling champion, completely lethal if this fight hits the mat. I do expect that Hamzat can actually take him down with relative ease. The question is, does he get stuck in Burns' guard or does he get on on his hip, slam him, and get immediately to side control? I think his better path to victory is to counter-wrestle, keep this fight on the feet, and strike. We haven't seen a ton of his striking, but I've seen him kick. His kicks, his jump knees look pretty lethal. We've seen some limited striking. He one-punched Gerald Mearshart, and Mearshart said he was like, he doesn't remember the entire fight week. Um, Some other regional tape, too, you know, moving his head, throwing a beautiful uppercut. Like, this guy's striking is pretty advanced. He knows what he's doing. And Burns is kind of chinny. And Burns doesn't have great cardio either. So while Burns is lethal, he's a bit of a glass cannon as well. This fight is listed around minus 250 to end inside the distance. I made it closer to minus 315. I actually laid the juice here on the fight to end inside the distance at minus 250. Um, I have a hard time seeing this fight getting past the first seven and a half minutes. I think the under one and a half of plus money is interesting. But I think there's a chance that both of these guys are like dying down the stretch and somebody's just going to collapse. So this is a violent spot. This is a really, really fun fight. I hope they grapple because I want to see what Hamzat's grappling looks like against an ADCC champion. But I mean, if, if he gets Gilbert's back, it's not going to matter how good of a submission artist you are if, if somebody has your back. So Hamzat, uh, it's, it's exciting to see him get, get a real, real test here. And I think he's going to pass it. What do you think, Billy? What's the best way to go about Kamzat versus Burns? Yeah, so what I'm saying here is it's just a giant step up for Kamzat. You know, Sean mentioned Li Jingling, who's a solid fighter, but, like, if it weren't for Kamara Usman, Gilbert Burns very well could still be the welterweight champion right now. You know, like, I'd love to see Burns versus Colby, and we could really decide that. But, um, yeah, so what I think is that Burns is able to survive at least through the first round. I'm looking to bet the fight to start round two at minus 175. I could also see Kamzat looking at this as an opportunity to get some more cage time to show that he can win minutes, to show that he can win striking exchanges. So I don't think he just mauls him in 12 seconds or whatever, like we've seen him do before. I see a lot of dirty boxing happening in this one. If I was Kamzat, I'd be looking to keep him against the fence, keep him there, which might make it a little bit more boring of a fight than people are expecting, just because if he's trying to grind him out and just slowly wear him down. Uh, and then the other thing I really like is if anyone's playing prize picks, I like Kamzat under 2.0 takedowns. Nobody has ever gotten back up when Kamzat's been on top of him in a cage. Like he can't get more than one takedown in a round because nobody gets back up. So it's probably likely that he ends up with exactly two, but there's a lot more upside on the winning side of that than there is on the losing side. Just because he, if he does decide to grapple, Burns is going to be comfortable playing on the ground with him. He's not going to try to get back up and Kamzat's certainly not going to let you back up. So those are the two angles I'm playing with this one. I really like that. I think it's, I think he's going to finish with exactly two, but yeah, I, I think the, the line being a two is uh 
that's a little bit of a safe haven for a push. If we could get that 2.5, I'd be so excited on that one. But yeah, he's not getting more than two. I feel pretty comfortable saying. Yeah. Thanks for joining us here on the Action Network podcast, UFC 273 betting preview. Brendan Glasheen with the Action Network, Sean Zarillo and Billy Ward breaking down all things that are set to go down in Florida. Let's move on to our favorite props. And of course, we always encourage you to shop around for those prop bets for UFC. Billy, we'll start with you here. Your favorite prop for uh, UFC 273. Yeah, I'm looking at the opening fight. It's Daniel Santos versus Julio Arce at 135. Uh, Santos is making his UFC debut. He also hasn't fought in like two and a half years, but I went back and found some tape on him and he is super aggressive. He comes out really hard. He's got multiple wins by spinning back kick and he can get these off in a phone booth. Normally you see guys looking to throw that they've got to create space. So I think he's able to put away Julio Arce and we're getting his inside the distance odds as high as plus 430. You know, Arce is a solid fighter, but I don't see him as like a future contender or top ranked guy where I truly think Santos could be one of the better 135ers in a couple of years. He's like a mini Vanderlei Silva from back in the day. Like he comes out, he's just looking to ax murder people. So it's going to be a super aggressive fight. I think this one gets stopped and I think Santos is the winner. So plus 430, I'm definitely taking that one. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I just want to comment on that, that fight real quick. That might be one of the most exciting fights on the night and it's the opener on the card. So don't miss that fight. It could be wild. Santos is just like all spinning attacks. He trains with Charles Oliveira. And you know those shoot-to-box guys are very aggressive and very violent. So don't miss that one. It's going to be a fun one. I'm going to take another violence prop, Mackenzie Dern, to win inside the distance. Plus 200 out there at MGM. She's plus 250 by submission as well. She could get a positional TKO, I suppose. So I generally bet the inside the distance odds. But the this should be more in line with her money line. I don't really get the odds discrepancy between her money line and the finish prop. I don't really give her much minute winning upside here against Torres, who is going to be the better striker. Dern is not just going to, if Dern gets takedowns, which she's not great at getting takedowns, but she is a grappler. So she'll try to pull guard, do whatever she can to get to the fight, to the mat. She's going to finish this fight. Torres has never faced the submission threat like this in her career. Never faced the serious grappling threat. I'm pretty confident that there's major levels in the BJJ. If it hits the mat and I expect Dern to finish her, so I don't see Dern controlling her for 15 minutes and winning a decision. I think a finish is basically 75% of her win condition and the market is telling you it's like 60%. So happy about that gap. Let's break down this fight, the fight, uh, the weekend here at UFC 273. Let's break things down from a DFS perspective. Billy, I've got the uh, contest up now. Um, you've got your normal five fighters, 9K or above. You got some mid-tier pricing. A lot of guys in the seven uh, k, eight k range. Um, your your DFS breakdown for UFC two seventy three, please. Yeah. So what's interesting is, like you said, we have about the normal amount of fighters over nine thousand, but the three at the top all look to be really, really strong plays because two of them have five round fights and one of them is combat. So all of those look like fighters you're going to want, but it's almost impossible to have all three and then make a lineup that doesn't use one of their opponents. So I think what's going to be a super popular strategy here is using two out of the three of them and getting that one that you leave out right is going to be important. But I also think people are overlooking Ian Gary a little bit here at 9,200. He looks to be a real solid prospect. It looks like they're trying to give him fights where he looks good. And the ownership on him is just going to be so much lower than everyone else. So I'm not super confident that he's going to be in the optimal lineup, but I think the leverage there is huge. But yeah, the big decision is going to be which of those top fighters do we fade? And then how do we play that? So Sean, do you have any thoughts on those three? 
Yeah, I know Hamzad's the most likely to finish by odds, which is why maybe just on that alone, people are most likely to include him. Uh, but it's the only three fight, three round fight in the group. So if it does extend, not going to score as many points. He may get tired and may not have a ton of striking volume. We said it's unlikely that Burns gets up and gets up and gets up. So it's not like he's going to have a high volume of takedowns either. And he's the most unproven guy of the bunch. So I think there's any, he might be the most owned, frankly, just on popularity. Uh, but yeah, I, I think take the guys from the five round fights, certainly. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And Kamzat's, I think, the only one of those three that could win the fight, but not be in the optimal lineup. Where Jan and Volk, just because it's five rounds, the lighter weight classes have just so much more action usually that they're almost always going to make it. So I'd be comfortable if you're not playing Kamzat, not playing Burns either. I think any lineup without Volk or yeah, and you just need their opponent because it's going to go for so long and there's going to be so much action. Billy, it, it looks like, too, you're, you're pretty willing to – so, okay, so in theory, you're going to stack up two guys that are 9K or above. So your, your value plays, you, you might not be able to get many guys in that 8K range. You're going to, but you're willing to go take a deeper dive to find some value. Yeah, you're going to have to kind of go stars and scrubs here if you want two of those top yep. guys. But we mentioned, I mentioned both Fremd and Santos. Those are both under 7,500. I like both of them as DFS picks. Not really super comfortable with either of those guys in cash games because they're, you know, high variance options. I really like Mark Madsen, both for cash and tournaments, though. Uh, you know, he's an Olympic silver medalist, and he's fighting a guy in Vink Pichel who got taken down like, 78 times or something in his last three fights. So even if Pichel's able to, I'm obviously exaggerating, but even if Pichel's going to win this fight, he's probably going to get taken down a bunch. And you get five points for a takedown. So if he stacks up seven or eight takedowns, he can probably be okay even with a loss. Sean, you have any other thoughts to add from a daily fantasy perspective here? Sterling, Jung as potential plays? There's a couple of under one and a halfs on the card. Uh, the heavyweight Olenek Vandera, I could see being very sloppy at points. Olenek can certainly finish him submission round one. Olenek's also 60 years old. Vandera can knock him out. But Josh Friend and Alexander Fluffy Hernandez, which Billy talked about already, that's a, I believe, a middleweight bout. Uh, I forgot what yeah. weight class that is. But that is a lower weight class bout with a rare under one and a half juice to the under, minus 150. So it's... At those odds, you almost have to include one of those two guys in your lineup uh, based on the odds market alone, and neither of them are big names. So I, I think there's a good chance the ownership rates aren't too high. It's just so hard to find the 8,700 if you want the uh, fluffy side of that. Like, absolutely, yeah. I think I think friend would be the you know the, the underdog play there for sure. Uh, and we we already mentioned Fluffy's not a guy I want to back with my money or probably my DFS lineups either. Okay, before we wrap, we always get best bets for UFC. Let's go to Sean Zarillo first. Your best bet for UFC 273. I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth. I'm taking Mickey Gall at plus 170 against Mike Mallett. I know Billy's laughing at me. So Mickey Gall like came onto the UFC scene to fight CM Punk. Um, and he wasn't very good at the time. And he wasn't very good after. I believe he got finished by Diego Sanchez, which is the worst look ever considering it happened in the twilight of Diego's career. But I tend to fade guys coming off a contender series, and I tend to fade guys who are fast finishers, especially when they're going against established UFC fighters. And Mickey Gall, I believe, is eight or nine UFC fights at this point. Mallet has like three and a half minutes of fight time in the past six or seven years. Um, there's a lot of unknown about him. And what I have seen isn't particularly impressive. He's grabbing submissions with no hooks in, like low technique stuff. 
Mickey is not the most durable guy, but I think he can be competitive at, at minimum in the grappling here. His striking has actually improved over the years. And he recently went down to Sanford MMA, which is a top camp in the sport. And I trust that he definitely made improvements for this camp in this fight. So I think just on price alone, you have to take a shot on Mickey here. I know it's not the type of fighter. You, you don't want to fade bad fighters with bad fighters, generally speaking. But I think on the price alone, this is probably closer to a coin flip. I think I made Mickey like plus 120. So a plus 170. Yeah, you got about him. Billy Ward, best bet. No, you know, I laughed when you said it, but I'm actually with you on it. Like, I don't know why I've had this feeling all week. I've heard other smart people say it. It's just, you don't like it. But the one thing I want to point out, Mickey is the younger fighter. It feels like he's been around forever because he fought CM Punk like eight years ago or something. So there's no reason he couldn't be getting better more than his competition, especially when he's fighting UFC level guys and the other guys are, you know, fighting in high school gyms or whatever. If this so, price was flipped, I might not have batted an eye, frankly. Yeah. I, if it was like minus 170 for Mickey, I would have been like, yeah, that's about right. But mm -mm, not plus 170. But, but yeah, I hate it, but I'm doing it too. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I hate the bet. Um, I love to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, I, I just mentioned him with the DFS section, but I'm on Mark Madsen here just on the takedown upside. Like I'm a little nervous with the Florida judges that are historically just boxing judges who don't really understand wrestling. But Vink Bichelle has 25% takedown defense in the UFC. Like you never see it that low. For a guy who's decent and you know madsen's this older guy that got into the sport he's actually younger than pichelle and he's only been doing it two or three years so i know he didn't look great in his last fight but if we had to bet on one of these guys to be improving it's definitely madsen and i think his kind of like one trick pony thing it's not going to take him to a title if he doesn't get better at something else but i think he's going to beat vink pichelle level guys with just being super awesome at one thing and we're getting him at plus money it's dropped a little bit throughout the week but i think he can still get plus 115 so yeah that one seems pretty straightforward to me at plus money all right, good stuff, gents. Good to be back this week. We were not here last week because nothing on the nothing on the calendar, but we are here every Friday on the Action Network podcast getting you set for UFC. Next week, we have Fight Night 206. Looking forward to that, and thanks to tuning in to our UFC 273 betting preview. For Action Network senior writer Sean Zarillo, former pro MMA fighter, MMA analyst Billy Ward, Brendan Glasheen, be on the lookout. Like I said, every Friday, we come to you here on the Action Network podcast. We'll catch you next time. Best of luck with your bets this weekend and your lineups. We'll talk to you again soon.